Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As we finish this series, Servants and Stewards. And to get us started today, we have a pop quiz. Who's excited? <laughs> Don't lie now. All right, two two examples here, okay? And bef- we're going to point the finger a little bit, but not for very long before we, right? And whenever you get a finger pointed at somebody else, there's three pointing back at you, right? So first example, the boasting of Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 4. Some of you may have read that very recently if you're on our blog doing the devotion. Here are some things Nebuchadnezzar said before his great fall. He said this, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's Nebuchadnezzar. Person number two, the humility of John the Baptist. Matthew 3, he said this, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He said, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and do you come to me? Okay, so those are the examples. Here's the question. Which one of these examples more closely represents the nature of, the, the speaking of, the acting of the people of the Corinthian church that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. Is the Corinthian church acting more like Nebuchadnezzar or acting more like John the Baptist? What do you think? And Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. That's right. Let's look again at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul wrote this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So yes, the, a lot of chapter... Four, even chapter 3 was about Paul and Apollos and, and leaders in the church, but I applied these things to myself, Paul says, for your benefit. It's, it's about you. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you boast? Now, as we complete this series today, in this portion of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses uh, the basic problem of the Corinthian church, the cause of their division. And in so many words, we could say it like this, they were full of themselves. They were full of themselves. They were filled with pride. They had zero problem with self-esteem. They had zero problem with confidence. However, Their confidence was rooted in themselves. Which means, if you think about it, they had zero reason for any of that confidence because they were not esteeming Jesus Christ. That's not where their confidence was coming from. Remember it says in Hebrews to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Uh, They were definitely going to church. Paul didn't doubt their salvation But he calls them out in this passage that we're going to read today for totally missing the point. They missed the point. Uh, They were turning Christianity on its head and tailoring it, tailoring Christianity to all of their felt needs, all of their own personal pleasures and their own desires. So in verse 7, Paul asked, why do you boast? And he answers his own question with some sharp sarcasm, uh, satire. Uh, in a sense, taunting the Corinthian believers. 
Kind of like the verbal equivalent of knocking them upside the head. That's what we're going to be reading today as we finish up chapter 4. He says, why do you boast? And this this is why, verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. All you want means they're satisfied, they're satiated, they've, they've eaten their fill. And when you're full, right, when you're eating and you're full, you don't want anything else to eat. You're full. There's no more room. He says, you're well off financially. Uh, you have, quote unquote, succeeded on your own. You have what it takes. You're awesome. And you've been rewarded. Congratulations. Uh, Turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look and see how that looks in another church as well. But without uh, the introduction that I gave today, as we think about this verse in, in 1 Corinthians 4 to the Corinthian church, without the introduction, do these words sound all that bad? You've succeeded. You're well off. You, you've ha- you have everything you want. Way to go. Without the context, the Corinthian church could have been pumped to hear Paul say these kinds of things. That's much like the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and following. And this is Jesus speaking to the church, remember. I know that your works, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or spew you out of my mouth. For you say, and listen to these things, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Does that sound familiar? That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. However, Jesus says, not realizing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable. Nobody wants to be pitied, right? That you're poor, blind and naked. Jesus continues, I, I counseled, counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. As if he's saying, my gold that you did not refine. <laughs> so that, he says, you may be rich. And white garments, remember white garments in heaven, the clothing of the saints is, is righteousness. Well, who's righteous? Jesus, right? Jesus is. Uh, so that you may buy uh, white garments that you did not make, right? That you did not make. So that you may clothe yourself and shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's saying you're blind. You have blind spots. You think everything is great and they're not. You have blind spots. And then Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Remember, repentance is, is a turning. It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. I was headed this way, thinking these things, doing these things, and in my repentance, I was wrong. God, you're right, and I'm going to go this way now. That's the full scope of repentance, and Jesus calls on them to do so. And think about this now. He's saying to them, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If everything is always going great, if everything is going swimmingly, 
does that mean that we have the favor of God? Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. In reality, when we see hardships and when we see trials, we could point to that and say, God loves me. That sounds counterproductive, doesn't it? But not in God's eyes. Not in his way of thinking. Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. And a lot of times we read that verse maybe by itself, and we think that's just like a matter of salvation, like Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and wants you to receive him by faith, and he'll come in and dwell you in the Spirit and that. But the context here is the church of Laodicea. So Jesus, with this church, is at the door of the church house, knocking on the door and saying, I'm here. And the church is carrying on just fine without him, unaware of his presence outside the door. Does that make sense? That's bad. (laughs) That's not a good thing. God forbid that we should ever have that. Back to 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. He said, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And he says, And would that you did reign, so that we might share in the rule with you. Paul says, uh, Hello, (laughs) do the apostles, does Apollos, uh, myself, do we look like we're reigning with Christ? And the answer was, No. And if we aren't, then how exactly do you think that you've arrived at this status? You've done this without us, apart from us. How is that possible? You've already arrived. You've begun your own reign. And he gives this idea of sharing the reign. Sharing it? What? And Exactly. This is a wake-up call. Uh, the reigning that the Corinthians were experiencing was nothing that the apostles could have had or been a part of. And this should have been alarming to the church. If they were truly reigning, then where were the rest of the Christians? Where were the apostles? The reality is they were missing the whole point. Their reign was not uh, the one that we will have with Christ through the gospel. Instead, it was a self-made, self-defined, personal empire. And it was worthless. It was worthless. And though it should have been alarming, uh, far too often it isn't. Uh, Because if we think about it, what we really want often is to be filled, to be rich, to be ruling and reigning on this earth. And so we assume that people like Paul uh, are just off their rocker. Maybe he's just too intense and needs to lighten up. We think these things about people. And so right now we need to stop and ask ourselves, get some perspective here. Is my satisfaction God's satisfaction? And if it isn't, uh, we'll think that we have everything, but we'll have nothing. Are my wants the same as God's wants? And if they aren't, we won't desire the same things that God desires. Are my riches the same as God's riches? If they aren't, what am I working for? What am I living for? And if we don't see these blind spots, if we remained blind to them, uh, we could see so much of our lives burned up 
as wood, hay, and stubble. From 1 Corinthians 3, remember? And never realize it until it's too late. That's a scary thought. And what do we have to look forward to in Christ's return? If this, what we, what we have and what we can get in this life, if that's all we're living for. If Christ becomes a means for me to gain riches, to gain better health, to gain the, the praise and approval of people uh, for fun and, and relationships and activities and all that kind of stuff, if that's what I'm doing all of this for, then why would anybody ever listen to me trying to convince them to believe in Jesus? Does that make sense? Why would anyone ever listen to me trying to convince them of Jesus when there are people all over the world who are rich and healthy and have the praise and approval of people, they have fun relationships, they have activities, etc., who have nothing to do with Jesus? If that's all I'm living for, then Jesus is an option on the table to accomplish the same ends. And then we have nothing. We have nothing. If the things of this life, on this earth, under this sun, are all that we want, then we can sing songs about Jesus and teach Bible stories about Jesus and we can pray pious prayers, fancy prayers in public in Jesus' name. And all the while, Jesus will be outside the door, knocking, undesired, by his own church. And this is how churches die. That is how that happens. In Revelation, Jesus says, the lampstand will be removed The church will die if that continues. Verse 9, Paul continues, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Uh, This is a neat picture. It's not really neat, but it's a neat picture of a Roman triumphal procession. So what they would do when they won the big battle... The army had gone out, they'd fought a tough battle or a not-so-tough battle, they won, and they would come back in, in triumph, in a parade, if you will, back into Rome. And in front of that whole parade would be the general to be praised and admired, the army that fought the battle, the heroes, and then behind them, those who they brought back with them or the treasure that they brought back with them, and all that coming behind, behind. At the very end of this triumphal procession were the lowest of low. And these people weren't even being brought in to be slaves in Rome. People knew that what these last people were coming in to do, they were headed into the arena, to the stadium, to go and be a spectacle, like like Gladiator, the movie Gladiator. They're going to go in there and the lions and the big beasts are going to maul them and kill them and everybody's going to watch them die and be entertained by it. That's what those last people were in that parade. So the people watching them coming in, rejoicing with their Roman army and their Roman general, cheering, 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 and then mocking those who come in last because they know where they're headed. And it's going to be fun to watch him go down. That's what Paul's, that's what Paul's comparing this to when he says, we have become a spectacle to the world. Isn't that amazing? This is Paul's contrast. You Corinthian believers are ruling. And we the apostles are the lowest of the low, being killed for sport. Every Christian reader should be thinking, that does not compute. (laughs) That does not match up. What's the deal? Paul continues, verse 10. We are, he says, fools. 
for Christ's sake, from the perspective of the world, right? But you are wise in Christ. That statement is not possible unless there's some sarcasm going on. Does that make sense? He's saying two contradictory things. He says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. If we're reading Bible verses and and speaking eloquently and calling it Christian in Christ and the world, people who are rejecting the gospel are still calling you wise, saying it's the best sermon they've ever heard, something is wrong. Does that make sense? Something is wrong. How can you be wise in the world's eyes in Christ? Not possible, Paul says. Paul is saying you are wise. You're so strong. You're held in honor. And you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. The Corinthian church had eaten their fill. And they were rich. But the apostles and the the other Christians, verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 20, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul continues, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, when others lie about us to hurt us, we entreat, we speak kindly to them. We have become and are still, and here's a great phrase, like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Front load that in a discussion about coming to church or putting your faith in Christ Oh, we're the scum of the world. That wouldn't resonate very well, would it? And yet that's what Paul says here. That's what he says. If Paul and others following Christ are the scum of the earth, if they're considered fools, if they're held in disrepute and reviled and persecuted and slandered and on and on, then who is calling the Corinthians wise and strong? Honoring them as high-ranking officials worthy of honor. And here's the two possibilities. If it's the world, if it's the world around them, then haven't, hasn't the church disavowed the world by joining themselves to Christ? Did that or did that not transpire? In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He'll come back to this and ask them, are you really saved? And then the idea, are you still joined to death? Or have you been joined to Christ? Uh, What version of Christianity is the world seeing in them to where they could potentially still call them great? Or, if this is coming from within, if these ideas of ruling and reigning and being rich and having their fill, if all that's coming from within, from their own mouths, from those within the church, if they're patting themselves on their own back, if you will, Uh, then we'd have much greater insight as to why Paul emphasized that he only preached Christ and him crucified to the church because they wouldn't have been doing it. Does that make sense? They wouldn't have been doing that. Where should all of the praise and our amazement be directed? To Jesus alone. Jesus Christ alone. 
And that right there answers the question, how can I bless a person who reviles me? How will I endure persecution? How could I possibly speak words of kindness to a person who's slandering me? And the only way that we can truly make it through life without any persecution or slander or reviling if we, is if we isolate ourselves from the world. If the church is able to have a, an environment where the gospel's not being preached and they're all thinking that they have their fill and ruling and reigning and they're all amazing, then both of those things have to be happening. Number one, there's really not much gospel going on in there. And number two, they've isolated themselves from the world so much. Like they're quarantined. Right? That all they hear is their own voices. And listen, the world has no problem with us if we're content to stay inside this building and not take it out. Does that make sense? If this is all we ever do, they're fine with that. Because eventually we'll die if this is all we ever do. Does that make sense? That's, that's the deal. And that's not separation. That's not biblical separation. That's isolation. That's isolation. Sometimes those two, two things are mistaken for each other. Okay, We are not of the world, right? But we are in the world. Uh, Christian scientists, they go to work and they may, may be considered inferior in their intellect. Stupid. If they don't share the same origin theories when that comes along. Uh, Christian businessmen and women may be seen as less effective and less trustworthy in the company because they're not willing to alter their ethics when it would personally gain the company. Christian teachers may be labeled archaic or even harmful to students if they seek to avoid indoctrinating those students with the latest trends and worldviews, right? Even in those things. And that's not blatant gospel presentation. That's just us believing the things that we believe in, having the worldview that we have, that God is on the throne, that he's our creator, that there is such a thing as sin and righteousness. Those things will make us different. Those things will make us the scum of the earth. But we have hope and we have an answer to all of that. Right? What are we of, church? We are of Christ. We are Christians. And that word Christians, Christians, means little Christs. And the world despises him. They despised him and they despise him. So why was Paul... Why were others able to bless when reviled? Why were they able to endure when persecuted? Why were they able to speak kindly when slandered? And here's the reason. Because they were not living for the world's, or for the church's for that matter, praise. They weren't living for man's praise. Their success had nothing to do with what people thought of them and everything to do with what God had called them, commanded them to do. If we're living for the praise and acceptance of man, then everything is wood, hay, and stubble. It gets burned up. It's useless. And if we want to have the ability, the freedom to faithfully serve people, get our eyes fixed on the glory of God. That's what we need. Remember whose you are. And that's freedom. So here's some encouragement. There's been a lot of heavy, right? Some encouragement. Freedom. We can have freedom. Imagine living life day by day, not worrying about what people think about you. <gasps> freedom. When we live life worried about what people think about us, think about this, we, we become their servants. And people are terrible masters. Amen? 
Especially, especially, especially when our worry about them is causing us to think and assume what it is they want. Have you ever done that before? I, I wonder if they like this, or I wonder if they like that. Oh, they looked at me funny that way. They must not like that. And we get into all those mental gymnastics about the, what they like and what they dislike. And when that's happening, it's not even the person who's being the master. It's the person you've made them to be in your mind. Those are chains. Those are chains of our own doing that we have locked ourselves up in. And, but the end goal of that mess isn't their praise. Even when we do that, when we fear those people's opinions and we try to get them to like us and to do everything they want us to do, we're not really even doing it for them because what we want is for them to tell us that we are great. It ends up getting turned back on us. What a tangled up mess all that is, yeah? But Christ offers us freedom from all of that. Freedom from all of that. Uh, Jesus offers in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, let me be your master. Let me be your Lord. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And a lot of the reason why it is is because then we have one single focus, one single, one single thing to have our vision cast upon. And we know what he thinks because it's in the word. We're not left to be confused or to wonder or to be worried. So we need to remember whose we are. Not so much who we are, whose we are. Paul reminds them of this also in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And when, as a result of that knowledge, our confidence comes from our faith in him, we are freed to joyfully love people and appoint them to our master, regardless of the consequences. Regardless. Because we know what our consequence is. Jesus. Eternal life. Verse 14, he says this, Paul writes this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Uh, not to be ashamed doesn't mean that shame's always wrong. Later in chapter 6, verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. But wallowing in shame without moving forward in faith is not a good idea. Right? Uh, shame for the proud, a proud person who is seeing and feeling shame, it results in a pity party kind of a woe is me kind of a thing because things didn't go my way. <laughs> but Paul didn't want this. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says this. He knew uh, that uh, the church would be grieved and he's worried about that, but their grief ended up bringing repentance, showing that Christ was working in them that there was humility in their hearts because shame for the humble results in repentance and reconciliation. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to warn you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through what? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. The church had become, in a sense here, kind of like this. We like hearing and we like learning and we like having our senses stimulated through that. That was becoming their new gospel. That was the it thing for them. 
Paul didn't become their father through that. Paul became their father through the gospel. If all we have, again, if all we have is, is great speaking, which that's to be debated, uh, or to feel great about things, that's not powerful. That only goes so far. And how does that compare to the fact that I'm a sinner, that I have deserved and earned hell, and that Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself and took on flesh and lived a perfect and sinless life and allowed himself to be considered the scum of the earth and to be put on the cross, nailed to the cross, to be separated from the Father under the curse of the Father because of the curse that I deserve, taking God's wrath upon him in my place so that I could have life and forgiveness. How much bigger is that than a really cool self-help talk? Right? This kills any TED talk you could ever listen to. Amen? Absolutely no question. That was where the power was. And Paul, as their spiritual father and as an apostle, Paul was one who had the right to speak authoritatively into their lives. And they were treating him like an option at a buffet table. We like Paul. We like Apollos. We like Peter. We like this guy. We like that guy. It wasn't just the world that was treating Paul poorly. It was the church as well. And he loved them. (laughs) And he served them. Why? Because he was free. He had freedom to do so. And the idea of him being their father in that time, in that culture, really up until the Industrial Revolution and us you know, growing up as kids, oh, I'm going to be whatever I want to be when I grow up. That's pretty much a new thing. Um, culturally speaking, children, uh, for the most of history of the world, would grow up and become what their fathers had been. Sons would grow up and become what their fathers had been. Bankers, bakers, farmers, carpenters, whatever. Whatever dad did, they would grow up and do the same. Paul says, I'm your father. Follow in my steps. Learn from me and do what I'm doing. He says it in verse 16. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Just a little side note there. That is, an, that is a clear description of the local church in every church. Okay, But here's the model. Paul was following Christ. Timothy was following Paul, following Christ. And on and on and on and on that goes. That's the model. So uh, Paul's saying here, look at Timothy. Listen to him when he comes to see me and to hear from me. Timothy's serving as an ambassador. Paul is an ambassador, both of Christ. And this only works, though, when we are being ambassadors of Christ, yes? Not just of a man or of a woman. So Paul is identifying Timothy as a faithful ambassador, a faithful son, carrying on the work of his spiritual father. In question, though, what would it look like to be an imitator of Paul? What would that look like if he was going to do that? And just even from this context, we see a couple of things. Number one, he was a spiritual father, which means what? If Paul's a spiritual father, what has transpired? He has preached the gospel. He's shared the gospel with people. And by God's grace, some of them, many of them, believed, responded in faith, 
There is fathering going on. And then also, uh, he is loving these people unconditionally. He's loving them unconditionally. He has the freedom to do so because of where his eyes are set. Those are things that are looking like Paul imitations. Okay, And Timothy was coming to teach and to live as an example. There's two prongs to that. Living as an example in Paul's place. His way of life. And remember, the gospel isn't just a story that gives us eternal life when we pray a prayer. It changes everything. It changes everything. Verse 18, some are arrogant. Arrogant means puffed up or inflated. Okay? As though I were not coming to you. This part's interesting. (laughs) But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Talk is not equal to power. If you have empty talk versus power, what wins? Power. More on this in a second, okay? And then perhaps one of the more interesting verses, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love (laughs) in a spirit of gentleness? There's a winning statement right there. (laughs) Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Uh, Maybe you've heard your mother at one point in your childhood say something like, just you wait until your father comes home. What did that mean? (laughs) There might be a rod in his hand pretty quick, right? Uh, This is not a literal spanking, of course, right? But discipline? Yeah. Yes. When we come back to 1 Corinthians after a while, we're going to see that right away in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But he's saying to them, when I come, do you want discipline or do you want a hug? (laughs) That's what it is, okay? That's what he's saying. So we want to think about three things as we finish up today. Number one, perspective. Perspective. In 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, it's all about perspective. Paul opens up in chapter 1 reminding us of who God is, of his faithfulness, of relying on him and his word, and knowing that power comes from the word of the cross. And then start to talk about how the Corinthian church forgot that. So it's all about perspective. And then much of the rest of the epistle addresses specific problems where their man-centered, self-centered perspective skewed their view, their thinking of everyday matters in life, and therefore their responses and their actions or their inaction. So as we complete this section of this book, these first four chapters, uh, we need to check our hearts to see what our perspective is. What is our worldview? Is it Christ-centric or something else? And that matters. As we continue through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see all the different kinds of ways that matters. And it's in everyday life. All matters of life and godliness. So perspective. How do I view the world? How do I view life? How do I view God? Number two, power. Power. Okay, being an imitator of Paul. Think about this now. In the idea of being an imitator of Paul, when was Paul most hated? When were the greatest times of persecution, when persecution came upon Paul? What was he doing when that came? And if you would read through the book of Acts, you would find that persecution was always close at hand 
when Paul was boldly proclaiming the gospel. That's what it was. Boldly sharing the gospel. And he says these things, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's Romans 1.16. And then we read this in chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And remember, persecution comes from those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Eloquent talk might entertain, but it doesn't change people from dead in their trespasses and sins to alive in Christ Jesus. Fancy talk might stimulate the senses and make us feel good about ourselves, but it doesn't free people from their bondage to sin. It doesn't do it. It has no power to do any of that. Only the gospel has that power. So perspective, power, and prestige. Prestige. We need to let it go. We need to have the right perspective. We need to speak with power and prestige. We need to let it go. Let it go. We follow a crucified Messiah. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 say this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. This is all about Jesus. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's who Jesus is in this world. But it wasn't the praise of man that rose Jesus from the grave, was it? It wasn't the praise of man that set Jesus at the right hand of the Father on the throne forever. And it won't be the praise of man that sees Jesus return to rule and reign on this earth. That's not where it's at. Church, there is no prestige for us here in this world. But this is not our home. This is not where it's at. So, church, let's, by God's grace, by God's grace, let's remember whose we are and let go of our desire for prestige. Let's focus our perspective and see Christ as our Lord and our greatest prize. And let's minister with the power of God, sharing the gospel with the perishing people of this community and in the world. We do that by God's grace. Let's pray together. God, where where I and where we think that a life well lived is full of abundance on this earth, God, grant us repentance. God, may we love you more than all that. May we be humble and see our great need for Jesus 
and as a result be so thankful for what you have done for us and giving him to us. God, may we be awed by your great love. May we be so enthralled in your beauty, in your goodness, in your promises that you've made to us. And may we not get any kind of sniff or thought or desire for power that is no power at all in this world. God, may we not be satiated or filled or have our tummies feel like they're full because of things this world has to offer us so that we would miss the idea of there being anything more. God, may we lay aside all of these weights that so easily and quickly weigh us down and slow us down and look to Jesus. God, give us that perspective. God, help us to speak with power because the gospel is on the tip of our tongues because we know that's the very thing that all the people that we know and love need. And God, help us to let go of our desire for the praise of man. And then God, may you be glorified here amongst your people. May your name be lifted up. And God, we thank you that in doing so, no matter what may come our way, we'll have joy and freedom in Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.